from the Midtown Detroit studios of WDET. This is Detroit Today. This year, the Detroit Today team spent weeks exploring the Flint water crisis through Dr. Mona Hanna-Atisha's book, What the Eyes Don't See. You can hear all of those conversations on season two of our podcast, Created Equal. Today, we're going to hear my conversation with former EPA official Elin Batonzo, who helped convince Dr. Mona to test kids for lead in their blood. And we'll hear from ACLU investigative reporter Kurt Guyette. That's all coming up on Detroit Today, right after the news from NPR. Elin Warren Batonzo is the former EPA worker who alerted Dr. Mona Hanna Atisha to what was likely happening to children in Flint. On this episode of Created Equal, my conversation with founder of Safe Water Engineering LLC, Elin Warren Batonzo. It was founded on the principle We hold these truths to be self evident that all men are created equal. That all men are created equal. How did Dr. Mona come to even be concerned about Flint water? The answer is Elen Batonzo, a lifelong friend of Dr. Mona's and a water quality expert who sensed from a memo that the water disaster was about to unfold. She was instrumental in uncovering Flint's water crisis. So let's start with this memo that you saw and what you concluded based on that memo and what sort of motivated you, I guess, to, to go to Dr. Mona and say... Something doesn't add up here. Yeah, so I was living in Michigan and following the news about Flint water because I'd seen headlines that there were some uh, Safe Drinking Water Act violations going on there. And uh, in one of the articles that I saw, I think Kurt Guyette had been reporting and published a memo from a former colleague of mine, Miguel Del Toro, from the EPA Chicago Region 5 office. And in that memo, he had said that he knew that Flint was not using corrosion control, that they have many lead service lines in the city of Flint. And he was very concerned, based on sampling that he had done there, that there were very high lead levels in the water there. And you said, for instance, and it's quoted in the book, that I worked with Miguel. I know Miguel. I trust him. And he wouldn't write this memo if there wasn't a serious problem. Dr. Mona says the urgency on Elon's face was unmistakable. Yes. Yeah. Talk about how you felt when you were talking to Dr. Mona about these things, that you had experience with this issue uh, in Washington, D.C. before. Mm -hmm. This was kind of an echo of something that you saw that was pretty harrowing. Right. Yeah. So I lived in Washington, D.C. during the D.C.-led crisis, and I worked for EPA during that time. So there had been... uh, They made a water treatment change there, and there had been about three years of high lead in the water, and and that had been covered up, you know, very much like the Flint water crisis, and that was reported in the media there. And what I had learned from my experience uh, in Washington, D.C., that nobody is really going to pay attention to the fact that there was lead in the water until there was some evidence that people were being harmed by it, even though they were violating a drinking water regulation. And so when I saw Miguel's memo about Flint, I I saw that the same thing was happening there and I was trying to figure out what in the world could I do to, um, you know, break this open because there was definitely harm there. So when Mona invited me over for dinner one night and started talking about her commute to Flint, all the pieces fell together in my mind and I realized that she had the ability to do this. Uh, And at the EPA... um uh, you tried to ele- you tried to address these elevated levels uh, in Washington when that crisis was unfolded, mm-hmm. and the EPA wasn't terribly responsive to your to your concerns. Is that right? Right. Yeah. So after the story broke in the Washington Post about high lead in the water, my boss came to me the next workday and said. Elin, can you find evidence that children have ever been poisoned by lead in the drinking water? Because all we ever hear about is being poisoned from lead paint. And so what I've learned uh, in my research at that time and since then is that generally when, when there is a child that is found to be lead poisoned, if there is an investigation at that home, 
once they find one source of lead exposure, they don't continue to uh, investigate any further. So if there's lead paint in the home, they say that's a lead paint exposure. That's the problem. We're going to remediate the paint. They don't go and see, is there an additional contribution from the water? And so for that reason, and because of the way we sample the water and the way we sample children, it is very hard to detect when a elevated lead exposure is due only to the water. So it was really hard to bring evidence uh, to my boss at that time that it was the drinking water that really can uh, poison children. But what we found uh, since then, um, actually in, in 2004, the Centers for Disease Control had put out a study that said that no children in D.C. were harmed by the D.C. lead crisis, but then put out a correction, not until 2010, six years later, saying that we actually excluded records from that analysis. And when we include them, we find that there is actually a evidence that the children living in homes with lead service lines have uh, elevated blood lead levels uh, at a much higher rate than the children who don't. So um, we had evidence there, but six years too late to do anything about it. We haven't had any of the interventions in Washington, D.C. that we've, um, Mona's been able to accomplish in Flint. Yeah. And in that way, uh, it must feel to you as though what happened in Flint and the response to it, partially at least thanks to things that you said and did, are kind of a makeup for what happened in Washington. I mean, we talked with Mark Edwards uh, recently about mm -hmm. that Washington crisis. He said the same thing, that that things there did not get fixed uh, the way that they should have. Uh, and they certainly haven't been fixed or hadn't been fixed in the way that things happen in Flint. It, it strikes me that that one of the reasons that uh, that Flint happened differently was because of what you said. Right, because we caught that there were health effects right in the middle of it. And I think it has really changed our conversation nationwide about lead and drinking water because we've had many lead crises, uh, the D.C. lead crisis, the Flint water crisis. They're not the only ones. We have lead and drinking water we've had in uh, lead action level exceedances all over the country. There's Portland, Denver, Pittsburgh, Newark. These are just a few. Um, we've got more here going on in Michigan as well. But it really changed the conversation to have evidence of harm in the middle of that crisis. And I think that's why we've been talking about lead and drinking water a lot more, and especially here in Michigan. Yeah. Talk about the things that we've done uh, that, that, um, that have mattered and maybe the things that are left undone still uh, in response to the Flint water crisis. Well, from a drinking water perspective, I think the big uh, thing that's happening in Flint is that they are replacing the lead service lines. And uh, according to reports out from the city of Flint, they're expecting either this month or this summer to finish replacing all of the lead service lines where um, that are actively serving homes with active water accounts. And that would probably be the fastest lead service line replacement program we've had in this country. And so that that is a huge huge deal. Um, they've been replacing full lead service lines all the way from the water main all the way to the home. Uh, in most water utilities, past practice has always been to do a partial lead service line replacement, you know, just to the curb. And there's a bunch of health concerns related to that practice. So the fact that they're doing this and distributing filters uh, in Flint is a huge deal. That's from the drinking water perspective. They've switched back to the Detroit water, mm -hmm. increased their corrosion treatment there. Flint is still a system that is very oversized for the population there. So we still have water quality concerns and they have to manage their distribution system very carefully to make sure that um, the water is moving, that they have maintain water quality for the entire system. And, and that's a real challenge when that system was developed for a population of over 200,000. They have less, less than 100,000 there right now. Uh, talk about that that idea of big systems built for many more people than they serve now and and how that introduces danger into the into the drinking water. Yeah, so you want the water in your water system to uh, move quickly to the customer because the the shortest time between treatment and consuming it is you know you have the best water quality because my microbes can enter the distribution system, they can grow and they're already in there. Um, you can have disinfection byproducts that form. The longer the water is just stagnant in your pipes and your household plumbing, you can have lead and copper and other metals leaching into the drinking water. So like the key to water quality is just 
get it to your mouth as fast as possible. <laughs> and um, so when you've got these oversized systems, it just stays in these large diameter water mains for a long time. And so from that perspective, when when those systems are a little leaky, it actually helps move the water along, even though we don't want to waste water and that's expensive. Um, you just want to get that water to the user as fast as possible. Yeah. Your work has focused more on, I think, the systems that take that water and and pump it to our, our our taps in our houses, but we have problems on both ends, right? I right. mean, it, it, there is a problem with uh, with source as well as system. Right, and the the cleaner we keep the source, the easier it is to treat and deliver reliable drinking water to people. Um, one thing about drinking water systems. Uh, they've been, I think before the Flint water crisis, a lot of people have really considered the drinking water systems like completely separate from the environmental systems and that you can, you can treat any source water. You can take the dirtiest water and if you put enough money and treatment into it, you can make it, you know, perfect drinking water. And so, uh, where communities have money for that, that's not a problem, (laughs) but where communities don't have money for that, then of course the drinking water is very much at risk. But um, our drinking water is part of our environmental, is part of the water cycle. So we need to consider that all together. But I also want you to address this, um, uh, I guess the serendipity, I guess, of of the way in which this unfolded because you knew Dr. Mona. You you two have been friends, I think, since high school, you have said. Um, And that made it easy, I guess, for you to get uh, the information to her and for her to act on it. Mm-hmm. But that's not really the way this is supposed to work. Right. And, and if not- That concerns for, me very much. Right, if not for that friendship. Right. I really wonder what, uh, what, what might've happened in Flint that would have been worse than what actually, uh, that, that actually happened. What was the failure um, that, that left it to, you know, this, this wonderful friendship uh, to, to uncover this massive public health problem. Well, I think there there are multiple failures along the way, and also kind of just many lucky coincidences that um, had me in the right place in the right time to be able to tell Mona about what was happening. But so some of those failures are the federal lead and copper rule is just completely inadequate for uh, making sure drinking water is safe from lead. And uh, when they did have evidence of lead in the water, that's the time to address it. We don't, we should never, ever be waiting to measure lead in children to address it because it's a, lead is a potent irreversible neurotoxin with multi-generational impacts. And so once you have waited to measure it in the children, it's far too late. So we need to develop a culture of when there's lead in the water, we address the lead in the water. Uh, And tell us about uh, Safe Water Engineering, this company that you have founded. So I've been, I, I, I had the opportunity to start my own company uh, because so many people were uh, asking me <laughs> to help them uh, with their <laughs> drinking water issues and uh, help them understand about lead in the drinking water. So I have been uh, doing some consulting for water utilities. I've been doing some consulting with Detroit. I've been working with some uh, environmental nonprofits who have been not involved in drinking water conversations in the past and they've realized we need to get up to speed very quickly. So that's been very rewarding to work with them and help them understand and engage better in our drinking water issues. So those are the types of work I'm doing. On the next episode of Created Equal, we'll hear from the ACLU investigative journalist who went door to door in Flint to tell the world what was actually happening in the city. We had to be bulletproof in terms of what we were doing because we knew that they were going to come after us and and attack us. Crossing the Lines is a series that explores what unites us and divides us here in Metro Detroit. 
This year, WDET went to Canton and Centerline to hear their stories about housing development. In 1990, roughly half of Canton's land was agricultural or vacant, according to the township. In 2008, that number dropped to roughly 10%. We're covered with subdivisions all over the place. Community. The Bazis are Lebanese-American, and like that Canton is close to Detroit's greater Middle Eastern community. Mo says diversity was also part of their decision to move. And culture. Champagne says the truck is the logo for a special celebration the city holds every summer. It's called the Centerline Independence Festival. It's not for Independence Day, but our independence as a community, when everybody else was consolidating into larger communities in those days, Centerline stayed independent. You depend on W. WDET to bring you the information of our community. And to bring that to you, WDET relies on you. Make your gift now at WDET.org or by calling 800-959-9338. I'm Mara and I'm from West Bloomfield. I think it's a responsibility and an investment that you make in yourself to be more informed and educated about your community in a way that you can be confident that you are informed. So when I listen to WDET, I'm confident that I'm informed and that I have the right information. In this new age of anybody can report on anything, this has already been fact-checked, like that work is done. And um, if that's something that you care about, you should donate. I'm Mara and I depend on WDET. You depend on WDET to bring you the information of our community. And to bring you that, WDET relies on you. Make your year-end tax-deductible gift now at WDET.org. Kirk Guyette is the ACLU of Michigan journalist who went door-to-door taking water samples and talking with Flint residents about what was happening in their homes before the world believed them. On this episode of Created Equal, my conversation with self-described advocacy journalist, Kurt Guyette. It was founded on the principle We hold these truths to be self-evident That all men are created equal. That all men are created equal. My first guest tonight is someone whose work really, really stood out among all of the journalism that was done about the Flint water crisis. Kurt was one of the first people paying attention to what was going on in Flint before people really knew uh, what was happening with the water crisis. And once it became an issue, he really took an aggressive and non-traditional approach to the way he reported the story. And it was his work that I think shined uh, a lot of that initial spotlight on not just what was happening, but why it was happening, who was responsible, and what the consequences uh, were going to be. So let's welcome Kurt, who is the editor-at-large for the ACLU of Michigan and producer of the mini-documentary, Here's to Flint. So I do want to get to I do want to get to with Kurt this idea of being a journalist who works for an organization like uh, the ACLU as opposed to uh, a newspaper or a magazine or a television station. Uh, I think among other things, his work stands out because it was sort of in this groundbreaking uh, space uh, where where journalism is changing so fast and where we're seeing lots of different players sort of enter the journalism space uh, with their own take on what the rules look like and what you're capable of doing and what the purpose of what you're doing is. But but I, I want to start with the work that Kurt started with in September of 2015 when you were walking around neighborhoods in Flint, knocking on doors and not asking people for interviews. Tell us what you were doing. <laughs> well... What happened was in July, early July, we published the internal U.S. EPA memo uh, that Miguel del Toro wrote, uh, sounding the alarm about uh, the potential, not just the potential, the likelihood, uh, the almost certainty that there were high levels of lead 
leaching into Flint's drinking water as a result of the switch to the river and the failure to use legally mandated corrosion control chemicals. And we published that memo. Uh, I wrote a story about it, uh, tried to get a comment from the Michigan Department of Environmental Quality. Uh, they wouldn't respond. Uh, subsequent emails showed. They said, oh, we get getting these calls from this journalist, and they put the word journalist in quotes from the uh, American Civil Liberties Union of Michigan. And then after we did, published that, then Michigan Radio very quickly uh, picked up the ball and started running with it as well. They talked to the MDEQ, who did respond, and uh, their spokesman, uh, Werfel, uh, said, we've been testing water all over the city of Flint. We can tell you when it comes to, to lead, people should just relax. And so we had a, a, I had a he said, she said story on my hands, which is, who are you going to believe? And they were uh, characterizing Del Toro as this, this rogue employee who improperly released this memo to one of the uh, Flint residents, Leanne Walters, because they had tested her house and they found lead levels two and a half times what it classifies as hazardous waste coming out of uh, their tap. And so they were discrediting, actively trying to discredit him and in order to bolster uh, their claim that nothing was wrong. And so then the question came is, well, how, how do you get to what's really going on conclusively? And um, I propose that we do our own tests, uh, by we meaning uh, the, the citizens who are involved and Mark Edwards, uh, who's the... Uh, uh, scientist at Virginia Tech University, one of the foremost uh, experts on lead and water in the in the world. And uh, so I called Mark and said, Mark, what it would take to uh, do these tests? And we started talking about it. And then he got a grant from the National Science Foundation. They sent uh, 300 test kits to, to Flint. And really, I was just working with him and, and the residents as, as, as part of this group effort to uh, go out and distribute test kits in the city. And really, it was unprecedented. There had never been sort of a, a citizen-led, independent uh, testing of a water supply like that had, had never occurred. So that was really a, a groundbreaking thing. And as much as anything that I'm proud of is, is you know, suggesting that we do that. I thought that was much more important than the, the other reporting that I did. Because then... As, and as soon as uh, Edwards and the team at Virginia Tech started getting these test kits back, they knew f with certainty that there was a problem because the lead levels uh, that they were seeing uh, were, were so high. Now, now, you were a skeptic about uh, this water switch from the beginning, uh, and, and you were reporting about the, the oversight of the emergency manager in Flint. That was what took you there in the first place? Yes, I was hired by the uh, ACLU of Michigan to uh, investigate and report on issues related to Michigan's emergency manager law, which is the most extreme receivership law of its kind in the country. And people, you know, people were going to meetings and waving jugs of, of discolored water and Man, it doesn't look good, but they keep saying it's good. But the, well, they didn't actually keep saying it's good. They had a series of problems. First, it was a E. coli, and then it, they started upping the amounts of uh, chlorine to kill the E. coli, and then that created uh, high levels of uh, a carcinogenic byproduct of, of uh, chlorine. And they went nine months without disclosing that to, to residents. And then when they did finally disclose it, uh, the residents were just irate. Why didn't you tell us that there was this cancer-causing chemical in, in our water? So I, I was reporting on that, and it was that reporting then when uh, Leanne Walters was given Del Toro's memo. Uh, she came to us with it because she trusted us to to get it out there and to be you know, unafraid to, to put it out there. So that was sort of the sequence. Yeah. Uh, at, at the press conference uh, where Dr. Mona sort of unveils uh, all of this, uh, you, got a little, you got a little exercised about uh, what some of the officials 
we're well, saying. Well, they continue to lie. <laughs> and, and one of the things that they continue to lie about was the role of the switch to the river. They said, oh, it's because the pipes are old. And, you know, certainly the infrastructure... It, would not have happened were the infrastructure not what it is. But it also happened because they switched to the river, which they went from a low corrosive source of water, Lake Huron, to the river, which is a very high corrosive source uh, because it has a very high salt content, among, among other things. And then they did not, because they did not have the equipment necessary to apply the corrosion control chemicals that the law required them to apply. So, but because they made that decision to switch to the river, because they made a decision to go ahead after the guy running the water plant said, if you start using this plant, it's over my objections because we're not ready to do it. Uh, because they had done all these things that were wrong, and then they were in uh, CYA mode and trying to uh, take attention away from what they had done wrong and, and start blaming the the river, uh, the uh, infrastructure, rather than their actions of not using properly treated uh, water, and and so, yeah, yeah. So that yeah, that's not true. I mean, what you, you're saying you, is not true. You, you said that at the press conference. You said you guys are lying, right? Yeah, I've been familiar with your work for a long time, and and for people who are not, Kurt is a dogged reporter. But one of the things that always comes across is how deeply you care about the things that you're writing about and reporting on. Uh, and in some journalistic contexts, people say, well, that's, that's across the line. Like, you need to be dispassionate about these things. You need to be the, the fact gatherer and the fact reporter and leave the emotion uh, to everyone else. Your, your approach, for as long as I've known you, uh, has been a little different. Well, when I was working for a newspaper, I was working for an alternative paper. Right. And, and you know, the rules are a little <laughs> They're looser. a little different there, too, right? Yes. Uh, and, but that was why I enjoyed being in the alternative press. I remember the first uh, alternative newspaper I worked at was in uh, Sacramento, California. And prior to that, I had worked at uh, small daily newspapers and taken journalism in, in uh, college. And the the idea of objectivity is just drilled into you. And when I went to work for this alternative paper, my editor there said, I don't expect you to be objective. I Honestly, I don't even believe it's really possible to be objective. What I want you to be is fair. And that was, that was like a light going off and the world opening up. It's like, oh my gosh. And, and was really energized by that. But you know, traditional journalism is, well, this side says this and this side says this and come to your conclusion. And in the alternative world, it's like this side says this and this side says this, but this side, it's full of shit. And, and, <laughs> and this is why they're full of shit. And because sometimes objectivity gets in the way of the truth. You know, it, it doesn't happen as much now, but... You know, certainly during the 90s and the early 2000s as the climate change issue was really, really starting to come to the fore, journalists would often give equal weight to the, the science and, and the deniers as if they were equally valid. And that's not serving anybody. As you were knocking on these doors in uh, August of, yes. of 2015, this is really before a lot of attention had sort of focused on the fact that, okay, here's what happened and here's why it's happening. But I wonder what the people you encountered were thinking and feeling at that time. Were they, uh, were they really aware of what was going on with the water and were they afraid? Well, they were aware that uh, the water didn't look good, taste good, or smell good. Uh, a lot of people were complaining of things like their hair falling out in clumps or getting these rashes that they'd go to a dermatologist and they, they couldn't really explain or uh, cure. And, and, so that they, and it all started happening after the switch to the river. So they, they knew something was wrong. They just didn't necessarily know for sure what was wrong, but they knew that the, a lot of you know their animals were getting sick and, and things like that. So, so they definitely knew there was a problem, and and for the most part, they were um, very enthusiastic about having an independent entities 
look at their water and tell them for sure what was in it. So it was not hard finding people to um, participate yeah. in that. In that sense, this sort of participation, the citizen participation in what you were doing is, is another kind of developing frontier, I guess, in journalism, right? You hear a lot about citizen journalism right now and the idea that people are often just as equipped to help tell stories about what's going on in their lives as, as journalists are. Uh, talk about how they responded to that idea of, okay, well, I'm a journalist, but I'm going to test the water and we're going to find out what's really going on before I even uh, uh, report on it. Yeah, and and the, the one thing that's very important, is it's not me, it was we. And the citizens were the driving force. And I think that that's part of the story that is the most inspiring part of the story, but also the most overlooked part of the story, is that, it, you know, the citizens uh, were fighting it before I got there. They had formed a coalition, and a lot of people uh, that I think were never in the same room together uh, were brought together by this, and I don't like the word crisis. I, I think the word disaster is, is more appropriate. Crisis gives the idea that something is, is kind of short term. This, this was a disaster. This was like you know, Katrina coming through. This, this was truly, truly a, a disaster for the city of Flint. And so they had formed this coalition. They tried to uh, go to court to get a, an injunction, stop using the water. Uh, it got rejected. But they were pushing, pushing, pushing. They had created uh, a website and, and were all working together. Uh, you know, they were very savvy in terms of what they were doing and, and trying to get the information out. And they were the ones that were largely the ones that, like, figured out, okay, we're going to do these tests. Edwards is sending these 300 test kits uh, from Virginia Tech. What are we going to do? Well, here's what we'll do. We'll, we'll, we'll hold, uh, like, town hall meetings, and we'll get people, and then when they come in, and they, they created um, how we're going to explain to people how we're doing the test, why we're doing the test, what we're looking for. Uh, they, were, they were absolutely. And, and so I was participating, and I was giving input because the, the one thing that I knew was that we had to be bulletproof in terms of what we were doing because we knew that they were going to come after us and, and attack us. And so, like, at one point, we had 200 kits distributed. And, I, and so, at my urging, we, we sat down, and, and they were very, very, very organized. They had index cards with all the information, uh, people's contact information, the addresses where we had gotten the samples from. And we got those, and we got a map, and we just started putting pins in the map, showing where we had collected. And it's like, okay, we're light over here, we're light over here. But we, but we got to go hit these people. We got to make sure that these are very well distributed because if we don't, one of the things that they're going to accuse us of doing is cherry picking, which is what they were doing in terms of the official tests. They were, they were cheating on those tests in um, probably June of uh, 15. The... Uh, Michigan Department of Environmental Quality sent a uh, email to the Flint saying, "We've been looking at the test results, and uh, they're coming in pretty high. Uh, you better hope out of the the rest of the tests that you do that none of them come in over the action level, or else you're going to not be in compliance." And the next thirty tests that they did, all of them uh, came in well under the action level because they chose sites that they knew that they were going to get low results. And then they were using those low results to give the false assurance that the water was safe. Uh, so that's what they are doing. But in order to, like I said, we, I just, I knew, like, we had to be bulletproof. And so we chose parts of the, of the city to go to. Um, Leon Walters, her husband had... Uh, been in the military police. And, in, uh, you know, at her urging, we were treating this like chain of custody evidence, <laughs> uh, you know, taping it up and then writing uh, what address it came from so we could know if anyone tried to, to tamper with it. Uh, you know, all these things. But uh, again, it was very much a, a collaborative effort. And I just saw it as we want to find out what the truth is. When, when before we did this, I talked to my bosses. I said, look, I think we're going to find high levels. But whatever it is, you know, we need to have a press conference and, and say what these results are. Because if it ends up coming in 
lower than we anticipated and the water really is safe. We need to tell people that because they're not trusting this. They're not trusting the government. And if we say it, you know, that, that will help assure them. And, you know, we talk about it's a tricky line to walk if you say you're a journalist working for an advocacy organization. But the, the key thing for me was maintaining the mindset of a journalist. And part of that is, you know, when I worked for alternative papers, you know, a lot of the driving force for what stories I would choose to cover was like where I was coming from. But as a journalist, once you do that, once you get into a story, then you have to let the cards fall where the cards fall. Otherwise, you don't have any credibility. And without credibility, you're, you're worthless. And, th- and that was always at the forefront of, of my thinking. We'll take a short break. And when we come back, more of my conversation with Kurt Guyette. So, of course, you interacted uh, not only with the citizens of Flint uh, a lot in this story, but also with officials, local officials, state officials, federal officials uh, uh, from the EPA. Let's start at the beginning when they were in the still in this really uh, hardened denial mode. What was your sense even then of what the motivation was to to, to question what was, you know, ultimately science, right? Um, th- there was real evidence that something was wrong, and they continued to say, well, that's not true. What, what was motivating that? Well, so on, on one level, it, it was just straight economics. If they were not in compliance with the federal lead and copper rule uh, requirements, then they would have had to start replacing lead service lines. And it costs about $5,000 a pop for each one of those lines. Uh, Flint was under emergency management because they were on the verge of being insolvent. Uh, the last thing they needed was to start having to incur the cost of uh, replacing the roughly 20,000 lead service lines in Flint. So that, that was part of it. But I think... A, bigger part of it was the emergency manager law, because the emergency manager law takes away the power of all duly elected officials. Uh, And the power lays solely in this one appointed bureaucrat. Uh, There was a series of these appointed bureaucrats, but each one had really near dictatorial power. It was the emergency manager who unilaterally made the decision to switch to the Flint River in order to save uh, what they figured would be about $5 million over a two-year period while a new pipeline was being built from uh, Lake Huron. But it, the, the lot sort of takes away a kind of check and balance. Under, under normal circumstances, you would have this city of Flint, an independent entity, conducting the tests, and then you would have the Department of Environmental Quality providing oversight. That was taken away. And so what you had was everybody was essentially on the same team. They were all, in a way, appointees of the governor or working for appointees of the governor. So you have the emergency manager who is an appointee of the governor. You have the Michigan Department of Environmental quality run by an appointee of the governor. You have the Department of Health and Human Services where the Legionnaires issue uh, was a factor and did not get disclosed for two years. And when people within the department are saying, geez, this problem's coming up after the switch to the river. I wonder if something has to do with that. The alarm bell was never sounded about the the Legionnaires problem. And because of that, I think uh, people were being misdiagnosed. They were being diagnosed with pneumonia rather than Legionnaires disease because the Department of Health was not sounding the alarm about a Legionnaires outbreak. And so the, the fact that there was no checks and balances, that everybody was on the, the same team, I think was absolutely a factor. And, you know, it's not just my opinion. The governor's own task force appointed afterward came to the conclusion that the emergency manager law was a key factor in this water disaster. And and this is, I believe, truly outrageous. To this day, that law remains unchanged. And, and that's 
that's reprehensible. I mean, when it, it's universally acknowledged that this law led to a disaster that caused the poison of the city's water supply and multiple deaths, to not do anything about it is unconscionable. You know, eight cities were taken over under the emergency manager law. And it's debatable the effects at the other cities. It's not debatable what happened in Flint. So if you're NASA and you shoot up eight rockets and seven of them get off the launch pad just fine and one of them blows up, you don't say, look at, look at these seven rockets, what a good job they did. No, you look at the one that blew up and you say, what the hell went wrong and what do we do to make sure it never happens again? This, to this day, the state has not done what is necessary to make sure that this doesn't ever happen again as a result of this law. And that's truly unconscionable. Yeah. Um, so, Kurt, as, as things go on uh, and the state starts to acknowledge, okay, well, this is, uh, this is a problem and we, we better do something, it's it, it still never, well, I don't want to say never, but it, it's a long time before they turn the corner and actually do the things that probably needed to be done from the beginning. I mean, there, there still is this, this foot drag, I guess, that, that uh, unfolds. Uh, talk about that, that time period and, and, again, why officials were not faster to say this is a disaster and we got to act more swiftly. Well, ultimately, the uh, decision maker was the governor, and the governor was a prime proponent of this emergency manager law that led to the disaster. So... He is, I guess, understandably reluctant to uh, admit that this law that he was a champion of led to this uh, disaster. So, you know, first they're denying there's a problem. Then there's denying that it's the result of the switch to the the river. Um, You know, we published Del Toro's memo in, I think, July 5th of uh, 2015. Right then, everybody should have known that this was a problem. And alarm bells should have been going off everywhere. They didn't. They, they denied. Uh, we started, uh, we did our own independent uh, test starting in early August. As soon as uh, Mark Edwards started uh, getting those, once they looked at 24 samples, uh, statistically they knew that there's no way that the city was in compliance with the, the lead and copper rule. And they started, they created a website and started putting that information on the website. I was writing articles about it, uh, you know, by mid-August. And they were calling people. You, you, you talk to the people that, uh, you know, the, the undergrads and grad students that, that were part of this team, and they talk about, like, how traumatic it was for them to be making these phone calls. We, we examined your water. You know, the, the federal limit is 15 parts per billion, which is way too high. Lead is a very, very powerful neurotoxin. Zero levels of lead are safe. Uh, Mona Hanna-Tisha will, will say, like even at, at like four parts per billion, you will start to see kids lose IQ points. And so... 15 parts per billion is, is, is way too high. But they were finding parts per billion in, in the hundreds. Uh, and so, you know, it was very traumatic for them to have to call these families and say, stop drinking your water because your kids are being uh, poisoned by it. You're all being uh, poisoned by it. So, it, you know, it just, they kept fighting every way. And then every step of the way, they attempted to discredit the truth tellers. I talked about how they tried to discredit uh, Del Toro. Uh, Mark, uh, the Department of Environmental Quality, Brad Werfel, uh, sent an email to a reporter when Edward started to uh, put the information up on their website. He says, you know, uh, Edwards and his team, they have this, uh, this history of uh, you know, pulling the lead rabbit out of the hat wherever they go. Like there's something in it for them to be reporting <laughs> yeah. what the actual levels of lead were. And then uh, for uh, Mona, and Mona was, was really pivotal in, in, in this way, which is we were very conclusively showing that the lead levels were way above uh, what was legally uh, limited to. Uh, what Mona did was when she went and looked at the records 
uh, for blood lead levels in children. And it was really brilliant. She did a nine-month period before the river, a nine-month period after the river, and looked both within uh, Flint and other areas of Genesee County, uh, which did not have to use the river water. They stayed on uh, the Detroit system. And when she found that uh, after the switch to the river, there was a statistically significant increase in the number of kids with elevated levels of lead in their blood, that was that was a game changer in, in a way because it's one thing to tell people you got lead in your water. It's another thing to tell people there's lead in your kid. Mm. And, and that, that just carries emotional weight. But then what was the action of the state? Oh, she spliced and diced her data. You know, that's the equivalent of, of accusing a, a journalist of, of uh, plagiarism or, or fabricating sources to say that a scientist would deliberately manipulate their data to come to... Uh, untrue outcome. You, can, you cannot say a worse thing about a, a scientist. And, and then it was the, the, the free press that got the state's database and said, hey, guess what, state? Your own data confirms what Atisha was saying. Right. And at that point, it was kind of game over. Uh, they, could, they couldn't deny it anymore. But then they still... Uh, and that was probably September of, of 15. Um, they still tried to blame it on the river. And it was not until, I think, November of 15 that uh, Governor Snyder relented and allowed Flint to switch back to uh, the Detroit system. And then uh, Karen Weaver was elected mayor. She declared a state of emergency. And that's, and that's really when everything blew apart. That's when I started getting calls from France and <laughs> Australia. You know, it became a worldwide story yeah. at, at that point. But there were months and months that... Uh, and Snyder says, oh, he didn't find out about it until, uh, like, the end of September. How could you not know? How could you not know? Once Dottor's memo was out there, how could anybody really not say that they didn't, weren't aware that there was a problem? So, so if, uh, if we sort of move the clock forward uh, to now, um, give your assessment of how we fixed, how well, I guess, we fixed what went wrong there and, and, and whether the state ever lived up to, you know, what the, the, the sort of, basic expectations might be of government in this, uh, in this situation? Well, all the, all the testing now is showing that the lead levels have been brought way down. Uh, I'm seeing around four parts per billion. Uh, so, so that's been addressed. But there was just an issue that was just reported uh, the other day that... Uh, Flint had not tested the requisite number of, of homes uh, required under the lead and, and copper rule to, you know, say with certainty that they are in compliance with the law. Uh, so, so that's still an issue. Um, but Flint has other problems uh, besides lead in the water. It's and you you are much more of an expert on, on this part of it than, than I am. But Flint's was a city of 200,000 people at its peak. Now it's fewer than 100,000. But it also had all these uh, auto plants that are now gone. But you have a huge water delivery system that is still in place, and it's not separated the industrial from the, the residential. And so you have a situation where water is sitting for weeks in uh, the, the water mains before it's making into people's homes. And while it's sitting there, the chlorine is dissipating, which then allows uh, bacterial cam- contamination to, to take hold. And so that problem uh, still exists. The other problem, when I first started going up there, there was two problems people were talking about. One was the, the quality of, of the water. The other was the cost of the water. You know, Flint is in the heart of the, the Great Lakes, has 20% of the world's fresh service water, and their water rates are among the highest, if not the highest in America, uh, because the population loss, the industrial loss is so great, and Flint, about 40% of the people living there are below the poverty line. Uh, 
so they don't have an, enough wealth there to maintain their water infrastructure. And that's not a, a problem that only Flint has. That's, that's why the, there's all these shutoffs going on in, in Detroit. It's the same, the same situation in, in Detroit. The, 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 the population has decreased so much. The industrial tax base has decreased so much. The money is just not there to adequately maintain the system. So they keep jacking up the rates, which then makes it harder and harder and harder for people to afford their water. Yeah. Okay, Kurt, thanks very much for being here with us. (laughs) (laughs) Created Equal is a production of WDET, Detroit's NPR station. Our executive producer is Joan Cherry Isabella. Our producers are Elena Fruget, Jake Neer, and Anna Marie Seisling. Our sound engineers are Matt Trevethan, Rowan Niamisto, and Rasan Cherry. Senior editor and musical composer is Sam Bobian. Our digital and social media team is Maida Stangi, Shiraz Ahmed, and Tony Brown. I'm your host, Stephen Henderson. Hi, this is David Green from Morning Edition. Pat Batchelor and the NPR team wake up in the wee hours to gather the news we share with you every morning on WDET. Your financial contribution makes it possible for WDET to broadcast NPR's Morning Edition, making you an informed citizen of Detroit and the world. You believe in independent journalism, and now is really the time for you to protect your Detroit source for fact-based news from around the world and from right here at home in Detroit. Become a member of Team DET for the first time or upgrade to a sustaining membership. Join Team DET today and make a gift of support by calling 1-800-959-9338. Or you can go online to WDET.org. Because of your support, WDET is able to celebrate the culture of our region. Musician and educator Elvin Waddles. I love this city. I've been fortunate to work with the late, great Aretha Franklin. Um, I was actually minister of music at her father's church, New Bethel, for years. I'm proud to be a part of it. God knows the, the musical legacy in Detroit. I mean, it's all here. It all has roots here. Make your year-end tax-deductible gift now at WDET.org or by calling 800-959-9338.